This is Dr. Robert Vinoy in his Old Testament History course, lecture number 28. By the general outline I gave you of the week-by-week progression, we are somewhat ahead of where I thought we'd be by this week. In other words, I thought we'd be up to Abraham, but we're already down to Isaac and Jacob. So we're down the line quite a bit. And we'll move into Joseph today. That will help us next quarter. That means that we will have more time next quarter, which is good. It's hard to project in a course like this how far you go, as it depends an awful lot on how much discussion and interaction there is. If there is a lot of discussion, it slows down how much you can cover. Then I end up eliminating things. We have a lot of leeway of what we can do in this class following your interests. We were at 4 under F. We finished 3. Quote, Jacob at Peniel in Genesis 32. 4 is, quote, the loss of Joseph in Genesis 37, end quote. I'm not really going to discuss Genesis 37. We'll pick up that under Joseph himself but I think it is good to mention it here when you think of Joseph's life. The loss of Joseph was a significant turning point as Joseph comes down to Egypt. Eventually, that means the whole family of Jacob goes down into Egypt. Let's go on to 5. Quote, Jacob's blessing in Genesis chapter 49, end quote. Now, the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 49 contains blessings that Jacob pronounced on each of his sons. It is reminiscent of the sort of thing that Noah did with his sons. Remember he pronounced certain blessings and curses on Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Isaac blessed his sons in Genesis chapter 27, verse 27 and following. Jacob, of course, prior to this, in what we mentioned in the last class hour, blessed the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, with all of those formulations of blessings, you are really talking about something more than just Noah's desire or Jacob's desire or wish for his sons. Because I think we must say that these blessings are actually inspired pronouncements of what is actually going to come to pass on the descendants of the people involved. These blessings are programmatic for the future. We saw the way it worked out with Noah's sons and the implications of that. The same is true here. So I think they are to properly be understood as prophetic in character. I think we must conclude that Jacob, by divine revelation, sees something of the future of each one of the tribes of Israel as he pronounces these blessings in Genesis chapter 49. I'm not going to go through the chapter and look at each of these pronouncements, but I do want to focus on the one for Judah, which is in verses 8 through 12. We read there, quote, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. 
he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Verse 10 is very well known, and it is significant, but if you look at the earlier part of the blessing, I think we see the first phrase implies that the right of the firstborn is going to rest with Judah. Quote, Your brothers will praise you. End quote. I think the line of promise that has proceeded from Abraham through Isaac to Jacob is now to be continued with Judah. Two things are said of Judah something concerning his enemies, and something concerning his relationship to his brothers. Quote, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons will bow down to you. End quote. In other words, he will subject his enemies, and his brothers are going to recognize his superiority. Then in verse 9, his glory is depicted in the imagery of a lion. Quote, you are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. End quote. That phrase brings us to the well-known statement. Quote, the scepter will not depart from Jacob, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. End quote. Now the scepter is a word that is used to indicate royalty. It is a symbol of royal power. The statement is, quote, the scepter will not depart from Judah, end quote. Well, the implication certainly is that royalty is going to arise within Judah. So you get here the first explicit indication that there's going to be a royal line in Israel. That whole idea of kingship in Israel becomes a significant thing later. It really isn't established until the time of Saul and David under Samuel, after the period of Judges. Israel was in the land for a long time before the kingship arises, but eventually it's established. It's anticipated in Genesis chapter 49. Other things are said later in the book of Numbers chapter 24 by Balaam when he prophesied about the future of Israel. He also sees the royalty in Israel. When we get to Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's a law of the king set out in advance. It describes when you do have a king, how he should function. It really doesn't become set until later. But in kingship, you get the institution established that ultimately is the institution that points forward to the great messianic ruler of the future, which points forward to Christ himself who will sit on the throne as the son of David. So kingship becomes an important theme. Here's one of the first intimations of it. A lot of people are under the notion that there's no idea of kingship before it arose, and when it did arise, the people thought it was something wrong. They assume it was something they should have never asked for. We'll discuss that when we get there. I think the issue is that they wanted the wrong kind of a king for the wrong reasons. But the kingship itself is something that was in God's plan and for his people from the very beginning. So it's a very positive thing. 
Now, the wrong kind of king, and desired for the wrong reasons, is something else, and that's what we see in 1 Samuel. This is the first explicit reference to it. Although the word, quote, king, end quote, isn't used here, the, quote, scepter, end quote, is the symbol for royal authority, which appears here. Unless you can say that implicitly, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and see that the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. You may say implicitly, the idea of royal power evolved from that. It's certainly not clear. This is the first explicit mention. The next phrase I'm reading from the NIV, the King James differs here. The second phrase, quote, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The King James says, quote, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, end quote, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The problem is, in the Hebrew, it's the same word that can be translated either way. It seems best in the context to understand it in the way the NIV does, which is, quote, a ruler's staff from between his feet, end quote, until a certain thing happens, and here again you have a difference of translation. In King James, it says, quote, until Shiloh comes, end quote. That is, quote, until Shiloh, the gathering of the people shall be, end quote. Whereas the NIV says, quote, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his, end quote. Now, the NIV does, does have a note that says, quote, or until Shiloh comes, or until he comes to whom tribute belongs, end quote. Now, the reason for those different translations is, it's a very difficult phrase to translate from Hebrew. If you look at the Kyle and Delich commentary in Genesis by Kyle, he takes it as the King James translation and translates it as, quote, until Shiloh comes, end quote. He has a lengthy discussion of the term in Hebrew and concludes it's related to the root Shalom, from which probably they named the city Shiloh. Shiloh is the place later when Israel comes into the land where the ark was located. From that root, the name of the city is probably derived. The meaning of the root is, quote, to be quiet, end quote, quote, to be at ease, end quote and, quote, to enjoy rest, end quote. The idea of Shiloh, then, is the city where the ark rested at Shiloh. But then Kyle says, Shiloh might denote not only a place of rest, but actually a bearer of rest, the one who gives rest. And he concludes, therefore, that Shiloh here is to be understood as a name, and it's really a messianic designation the one who brings or bears rest. So it's a title of the Messiah. He says in that connection that we regard Shiloh as a title of the Messiah, in common with the entire Jewish synagogue and the whole Christian church, which although there may be uncertainty about the grammatical interpretation of the word, there is perfect agreement as to the fact that the patriarch is here proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. You would have the reading, then, that, quote, the scepter will not depart from Judah, or the lawgiver's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, end quote. The Messiah comes. 
Now others object to taking the Hebrew expression there as a proper name. It's pointed out by those who translate it as the NIV version does, that taking it as a proper name or a title is found in no version earlier than the 16th century. There's no other reference to Shiloh as a title of the Messiah anywhere else in the Bible. If this is the title for the Messiah, it's the only place in which it is used. Probably, most importantly, in references made to Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 27, it seems that there's an allusion to this passage. In Ezekiel 21, you have verse 27, although in the Hebrew it's verse 32. But in this chapter, you have a prophecy concerning the coming destruction at the hands of the Babylonians, of Judah and Jerusalem. The NIV entitles it, quote, Babylon, God's sword of judgment, end quote. If you look at the second verse, quote, Son of man, set your face against Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuary. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to her, This is what the Lord says, I am against you. I will draw my sword from its scabbard and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Because I am going to cut off the righteous and the wicked, my sword will be unsheathed against everyone from the south to the north. End quote. If you go down a bit further in verse 7, it says, quote, It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. End quote. Then in verse 10, quote, A sword, a sword, sharpened and polished, sharpened for the slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. End quote. Then a question, quote, Shall we rejoice in the scepter of my son Judah? The sword despises every such stick. End quote. Now there you see a reference to the scepter of Judah, because Judah has this scepter. Is that going to protect you against this judgment? Well, quote, the sword despises every such stick. End quote. Is a statement in this chapter. Down in verse 13, quote, testing will surely come. And what if the scepter of Judah which the sword despises, does not continue, declares the Sovereign Lord. End quote. Again, you see, it seems like an allusion back to Genesis 49, verse 10, where it says that, quote, the scepter will not depart from Judah, end quote. When you get down further in the chapter, down to verse 21, quote, for the king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road, at the junction of the two roads to seek an omen, end quote. Here you have insight into ancient Near Eastern ways of determining the will of God. Quote, he will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver, end quote. Remember, liver and its configuration were used to determine the will of God. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem, where he is to set up battering rams to give the command to slaughter, to sound the battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, end quote, and so forth. Now you read the end of the verse 24, it says, You are going to be taken captive. He's going to come against Jerusalem. Verse 26, quote, The Lord says, Take off the turban, remove the crown. It will not be as it was. 
the lowly will be exalted, and the exalted will be brought low. A ruin, a ruin, I will make it a ruin. It will not be restored. And here's the allusion to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Quote, Until he comes to whom it rightly belongs, to him I will give it. End quote. Now the NIV translates Genesis 49, verse 10, that, quote, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. End quote. So the wording at Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 27, is different than the wording in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. But most are convinced that what you have in the Ezekiel passage is a longer version, you might say, of what you find in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. This is the Hebrew word for those of you that have had any Hebrew, Shiloh. If you look it up in the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon, you'll see a noun that probably equals Shelu, quote, he whose it is comes, end quote, or, quote, that which belongs to him comes, end quote, which is a combination of Asher plus Lo. A share is, quote, which, end quote, and Lo is, quote, to him, end quote. Quote, which is to him, end quote, is the combined form of this word. It's a shortened form of Asher combined with Lo. You see it down here in Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 32. You have, quote, until comes Asher Lo, that which is rightfully to him. Most of you, I realize, haven't had Hebrew, but I'm just going to try to give you some idea of what the nature of the problem is respective to this translation. I think for myself, I would be inclined to go with the NIV and to accept that the Ezekiel text is a parallel and sort of an expansion to the terminology of Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. If that's the case, it would mean that Shiloh in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 is not a proper name. But it is this, quote, he to whom it belongs, end quote, idea. Whether you translate it, quote, Shiloh comes, end quote, or, quote, he to whom it belongs comes, end quote, makes no difference as far as the messianic character of the statement. In either case, you're pointing forward to the one to whom the scepter rightfully belongs, whether you call the person Shiloh or, quote, he to whom it belongs, end quote. In Meredith Klein's commentary, the New Bible Commentary, Revised Edition, he comments on this verse, quote, Judah will continue to be the royal house until he to whom it, that is, the scepter of kingship, belongs, comes. So, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, is a significant verse in the context of this movement of redemptive history because here you have not only the narrowing of the promise from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now to within Jacob, the tribe of Judah, but you also have the introduction of this idea of kingship into this unfolding of the promise. A king is going to rise out of Judah. Any questions or comments? 
I think the idea is that it's continuing line even even though there may be some gaps in the actual having of a person sitting on the throne of David, you might say. Certainly there was between 586 B.C. and the coming of Christ. But with the coming of Christ, it's true some people were looking for him to take up the role of the Davidic king and in a very political way expel the Romans and establish his kingdom, which he didn't do in a political sense. Nevertheless, he certainly did come as the son of David. It seems to me he inaugurated the kingdom, at least in a provisional way, of course, and in a spiritual way. We'll see the more complete, fuller manifestation of that later. But that raises another issue with respect to the kingdom, as to whether it was established in some sense in the first coming of Christ, or waits to be established in the second advent. There are those who say that it was established at the first advent, and don't even see any fuller realization of it except in the eternal state. There are others that say that it wasn't established at his first advent, and every aspect of it remains yet to be realized. It seems to me that the Bible takes a middle ground on that. It's here in one sense, but it's still coming in another sense. It's here, but it's not in its fullest, and the fullness has yet to be realized. I think the point, to get back to the question, is there's going to be an enduring dynasty that will last. This promise is elaborated on with David's promise that, quote, your house will last forever, end quote. David is told that really is the same idea. Shiloh could be the person or the place, could go either way. It served as the location of the ark for a relatively short period of time during the time of the judges and was destroyed probably by the Philistines. The ark never returned there. Even the location of Shiloh was somewhat disputed. I think it's probably better to say, unquote, until Shiloh comes, unquote, or on the analogy from Ezekiel, quote, until he comes whose right it is, end quote. One of those two, rather than, quote, he who comes to Shiloh, end quote. All right, G on your sheet is, quote, Joseph, end quote, and one is Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. This is another of those structural dividing points in the book of Genesis. Because you notice, Genesis 37.2 says, quote, This is the account of Jacob, end quote. Now that's from the NIV, which somewhat obscures the Hebrew of that phrase. The King James says, quote, These are the generations of Jacob, end quote. Remember we discussed that phrase, and the Hebrew, it's the Toledot, quote, generations of, end quote. What it's saying is, here's a new section, and the idea is, what is to follow is what's going to come out of Jacob. You have a new period beginning in which you find the expansion of the chosen line into a people or a nation. Because from this point on, the focus is not just on Jacob, certainly not just on his personal experiences, even though those are involved, but on the events that prepared 
for the forming of the people or nation of Israel. That, of course, involves Joseph being sold down into Egypt by his brothers, the famine arising, and eventually the whole family having to go down into Egypt to be preserved, with the food that had been set aside there. That, of course, is the means by which Israel and the family of Jacob go down into Egypt, where they become a nation. They spend that 430 years in Egypt. All right. Two is, quote, the events of Joseph's life, end quote. I've sort of outlined it in your outline sheets. I'm not going to go through this chapter by chapter, but a few comments on some of his points. Schultz has a summary on page 37 on the events of the life of Joseph, discussing Genesis chapter 37 through 50. I might just say that the Joseph narratives are some of the most dramatic in all literature. Now I think there's something significant happening here as far as redemptive history is concerned. But even apart from that, people who look at these narratives just from the standpoint of their literary artistic value tell us that these are some of the best narrative stories that you will find in all of literature. Of course, there's a lot of drama there. Joseph is sold by his brothers, put in prison unjustly. He interprets the dreams of the butler and a baker, and then a pharaoh. He rises to be a ruler in Egypt. Then you have the brothers come in and all that interchange between the brothers. Joseph eventually reveals himself as to who he is. So you notice on your sheets, 37, he's taken to Egypt. Then chapters 39 through 41, from slave to ruler, his imprisonment, the interpretation of dreams. In prison he meets the cupbearer of the pharaoh and the baker of the pharaoh. They have some dreams and he tells them, that the cupbearer is going to be restored to his position, and that the baker is going to be killed. And that's exactly what happens. He tells the cupbearer, When you are restored, remember me. Speak to Pharaoh for me. The cupbearer completely forgot. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream, and then he remembers. Oh, there was that fellow back there in prison that knew how to interpret dreams. So Joseph is called into Pharaoh, and interprets a dream of the seven fat cows and the seven lean cows, and the withered grain, and the prosperous grain, the seven years of prosperity, and the abundance, and the seven years of famine. He tells Pharaoh that you really need to plan ahead during the seven years of abundance. Pharaoh then seeks out someone to do that, and he again turns to Joseph. There's a lesson there from the other side, of course. God's providence is in all this. But this matter of forgetting things that are important for other people, it is a very easy thing to do. Some little thing that you could do that would be of enormous significance for someone else. It is very easy just to completely forget that and to take it seriously. There are no consequences for you but big consequences for the forgotten. All right, C is, quote, Joseph's encounters with his brothers, Genesis chapter 42 to 45, end quote. The first journey into Egypt is without Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin was the second son of Rachel. 
Rachel was the favorite wife and Joseph was the first son after a long time of barrenness. Finally, Joseph was born. Jacob loses Joseph. And then Benjamin's born, and in childbirth, Rachel dies. Benjamin then becomes the father's favorite. So when these other brothers go down to Egypt, Benjamin stays with Jacob and doesn't go down. But Simeon is detained by Joseph because he inquired and found out about Benjamin. And he says, the way you can show me you're not really spies is you go back and get Benjamin and bring him back with you. When the brothers go back and report that to Jacob, it's very difficult for Jacob to say that Benjamin can go. He finally agrees to it. In the second journey, Judah becomes assurance for Benjamin, and eventually Joseph identifies himself. Then the children of Israel settle in Egypt. Goshen is given to them as a place to live. Then you have Jacob's blessings, Jacob's death, and the burial in Canaan, where they take him back up into the land of Canaan for burial. Now that is just a brief resume of the flow of these narratives. I want to say something about the significance of these events in the context of redemptive history, and we'll go back in and look at certain sections of this. A typological interpretation is that Joseph is an almost sinless man, pointing forward to Christ. There may be certain typological connections between Joseph and Christ, but I think you have to be careful about how far you go with it. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, and maybe this puts a different light on Joseph, but maybe not much. It reads, quote, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. He brought their father a bad report about them, end quote, his brothers. Now, here you have one brother coming back with bad information, a snitch, or a tattletale of sorts. Then, when you go down to verse 5, you read, quote, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. They were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? End quote. Of course, there's irony in this, because they do bow down later in the story. Quote, and they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Quote, Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, Quote, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind, unquote. It seems to me that through all that, his attitude is one of putting it on pretty heavy toward his brothers. Now, true, I think God was revealing something to him in a dream that later is going to come to pass, but it seems to me that his attitude wasn't all that it could have been in how he spoke of these things to his brothers and father. So I think Joseph was a man, like all other men, 
who had his good and his bad traits. I do think there are certain aspects of his life that may well have a typological significance. The man I studied with in Holland, who is N. H. Rittervoss, I think I mentioned that earlier, Hermann Rittervoss wrote The Coming of the Kingdom and Paul, an outline of his theology. N. H. Rittervoss was an Old Testament scholar, and N. H. and Hermann were brothers. Then there was the father, J. Rittervoss, who was also an Old Testament scholar. He was the father of two sons, both of whom who taught in the seminary. N. H. was the professor at the Free Amsterdam University in Old Testament, under whom I studied. He said that the New Testament does not refer to Joseph as a type. This is a caution. But it does seem that in the Joseph story, the theme of humiliation and later exaltation finds a realization in the person of Christ. Joseph, as Christ, preserves God's people from destruction. But then he adds, there are limits. Some treatments seem to border on allegory in finding detailed correspondences, and that's where he sort of backs off, and I think that's a healthy thing to do. Let's move on to number three. Quote, the significance of these events in the context of redemptive history. End quote. I want to make just two points here. The first one is, Joseph temporarily becomes prominent, although Judah is the promised seed. Now, in these stories, it appears that the tension between Leah and Rachel is continuing in their children, because the first four sons of Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, are involved in selling the son of Rachel to the Midianite traders, by which he gets taken down to Egypt. Now, it's true, however, that Judah is the one who proposes to sell Joseph rather than kill him, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 27. Quote, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. End quote. Reuben, it appears, really wanted to free him, because in verse 21, quote, When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said, then throw him into the cistern in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him and take him back to his father, end quote. But when he came back, verse 29, he finds that Joseph isn't there, and he tore his clothes and went back to his brothers and asked his brothers, quote, where can I turn now, end quote. So it does seem that Reuben really wasn't too much a part of that. But in any case, it does seem that a measure of this conflict is continuing in the children. In addition, Judah's conduct in the next chapter, chapter 38, which is sort of a parenthesis in this sequence of narratives about Joseph, is not the character you might expect, out of the one through whom that promised line is going to continue, because chapter 38 tells of Judah's relationship with Tamar, who was Judah's son's former wife. Her husband, Judah's son, died, and at a certain point she didn't have another husband, and the other son of Judah was not willing to perform that leveret obligation with respect to her. Judah is out on the road and sees her. He mistakes her for a harlot, 
and has a sexual relationship with her, out of which children are born. You read in verse 16, quote, Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come, let me sleep with you. End quote. Verse 24, quote, Three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out, and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. End quote. But the children are born, and you read in chapter 38, verse 29, quote, But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. When his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah, end quote. The interesting thing is that Perez becomes a link in the line of Judah to Christ. If you look at Ruth, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, at the end of the book of Ruth, you read, quote, This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, end quote. So, in the line down to David, you find Perez. Over in Matthew, chapter 1, where you have the genealogy of Christ, verse 3, quote, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, end quote. So, it's not the sort of conduct you might expect, but we have seen that a number of times. God works his redemptive purposes out in spite of the sinful acts of man. During this time, Joseph is prominent. He is sold by his brothers, but that serves ultimately to preserve the children of Israel and bring them back together again. I see my time is about up. We'll have to stop here. I'll pick up at this point next quarter. Quote, the significance of these events in the context of redemptive history, end quote. We've looked at one point, Joseph temporarily becomes prominent, although Judah is the one who will fulfill the promise and prophecy. This ends Dr. Robert Vinoy in his Old Testament history course, lecture number 28.